welcome to the Relationship Recovery Podcast, hosted by Jessica Knight, a certified life coach who specializes in narcissistic and emotional abuse. This podcast is intended to help you identify manipulative and abusive behavior, set boundaries with yourself and others, and heal the relationship with yourself so you can learn to love in a healthy way. Hello and welcome back and thank you for being here. Today, I have a special guest, Trey. I originally found Trey on Instagram and really resonated with a lot of his content. There are a lot of creators out there and every once in a while you stumble upon one that really speaks in a language that you can actually digest and hear. And for me, that was Trey's Instagram account. I didn't know much about him before starting this episode, but I was amazed, and I think he was too, about the amount of parallels that we had. Our stories are very similar, our realizations are very similar, and we both had very similar boundaries that led us to escape abusive relationships. In this episode, Trey talks about his story, about how he started to understand what he was going through and who this person was in relationship to his whole life story, and then how he got out and how hard that was. This is a must-listen-to episode, especially for those that are in the aftermath of abuse. I think that you will feel really validated and not alone by his story, and I know that I'm still thinking about a lot of the things that we talked about and the way that he worded things and how he shared it. I think he has a beautiful way of describing some of these really tough, complex topics, especially in relationship to leaving abuse. Before we get to the episode, just a quick reminder, you can find me at Emotional Abuse Coach on Instagram, emotionalabusecoach.com. My course, the Relationship Recovery course, is about learning and understanding abuse, recognizing yourself inside of that abusive relationship, understanding how to set boundaries so that you can feel yourself again or begin to have enough space from the other person so that you can think for yourself. And then we talk about the first steps in healing. All my other offerings, as most of my listeners know, are at emotionalabusecoach.com, including one-on-one coaching. As you listen to this episode, I think that you'll hear a lot of You'll catch on to a lot of things that Trey says and you'll want to find him. So before we go there, I just do want to let you know all of his links are in the show notes. You will be able to find him and connect with him and he will absolutely be back. So if there are questions that pop up on the way, you can always email those to me at Jessica at JessicaNightCoaching.com. So here's Trey. Okay. Hi, Trey. Thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Can you tell us a little bit about you and what you do? Yes. So like I said, my name is Trey. I am a survivor of narcissistic abuse. And I talk about it a lot on all of my social media platforms. And that all started about a little over two years ago at this point. And since then, it's developed. And now I've also started uh, well, I'm almost finished with my doctor in occupational therapy, and I've been focusing a lot on two things, the brain and how it handles emotional trauma and just reclaiming your life after trauma, whether it's physical or emotional. And through that training and my own lived experience, 
I've been able to launch uh, coaching sessions. And I'm also now just launched a coaching community, which I'm really excited about. And I also have a journal out, a course out. So it's, it's really developed into this beautiful thing um, that I was not expecting <laughs> when I made my first <laughs> social media post about it. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. When you made your first post about it, was it just you trying to share your experience? Like kind of like putting it out into the ether and maybe, maybe somebody will yeah. hear it. Maybe they won't. Yeah. You know, it wasn't even that deep. <laughs> like, yeah. was, what, was, <laughs> what was funny about it is I don't know if you've ever seen the movie. It's a cartoon. It's a kid's movie. It's called Inside Out. And it has like all the different emotions like in their head and stuff like joy and anger and like all this stuff. And I was at work one day and I will never forget this. I was just like walking down the hallway at work. And I just had this thought of like, I wonder what goes on inside the mind of a narcissist. And then all of a sudden, like these skits just started coming to my head um, where it was like the different terms that we talk about, like love bombing yeah. and true colors and like all this stuff. And it just, it, I literally just went home that night and I made like five skits back to back. And I used some of my personal experience in the skit, but it was just, I think it was just a outlet for me to process what had happened. And I had made them on TikTok and I was like, yeah, what the heck? I'll just post it and whatever happens, happens. And mm-hmm. it kind of took off. It was, like I said, completely unexpected. And I think it was just the way that I was processing. I'm a pretty creative person. And I think mm-hmm. it was just a creative outlet for me to process my personal experience. That's awesome. But what I've learned about the skits from, it's not like my bread and butter, but I post a few on TikTok, like, I don't know, maybe like one or two a month. It's, again, I, I usually, I, it's not my, um, my go-to thing. But one thing that I learned from it is that people really can see themselves and your experience when in the skit. Like, it's oh, almost like sure. you're like replaying that conversation and it just resonates so much, especially when it yeah. feels like this is like an alien topic. Yeah. And I think people can identify with it where they're like, oh my gosh, I went through the exact same thing. And it validates them so much to realize like, no, you're not making this up in your head. Like this is a real thing because all these other people, obviously we all have our own individual details, but the underlying experience is the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Can you share a little bit about your experience with a narcissist? Was this a romantic relationship? Uh, So the one that actually sparked all of this was a romantic relationship um, through learning about it. I realized that I had dealt with it in other aspects and other types of relationships. So like extended yeah. family, fortunately, like my parents were great, but like I had an issue with an extended family member and I realized, oh, that's what this was. <laughs> um, yeah. I had two very influential mentors in my life in the business world um, that looking back on it with these, like this new knowledge base, I was like, well, no wonder why XYZ happened to me during that, because this is exactly what it was. So the romantic relationship and the healing from that sparked the knowledge journey. And the knowledge journey kind of mm-hmm. opened my eyes to all this other stuff that had happened in, you know, essentially my 20s, because uh, I left, I left him right when I had turned 30. Um, okay. We were together for 18 months, we lived together for 10 of those. Um and it was just kind of the classic cycle. Um, I was in a uh, relationship. I was in a marriage with my kid's mom um, before I mm-hmm. met him. And he was actually my first same-sex relationship. And, mm-hmm. you know, he was not only working 
me over, but he was also working my kid's mom over because we were still very good friends and we have a very healthy co-parenting relationship. And there was so much going on in the background between the two of them that I didn't know he was having complete conversations with her and then coming back to me and twisting the conversations. And so he was actively trying to pin us against each other. Um, Mm. And honestly, like there was, you know, it's just kind of, it was the first three months of it. Yes. There was a lot of very highs and very lows emotionally. Um, I definitely saw a lot of, I called them his rage episodes. Um, Mm -hmm. It's just kind of where he would get into this like blackout rage. It was never physical. Um, but it just was scary, if that makes sense. Like his behavior yeah. was just scary. Um, yeah. And, uh, but at the, you know, but outside of those, you know, we had a lot of like fun moments and it was exciting and all this. And there was a time period kind of in the middle. I always say the bookends were really bad. The beginning was pretty rough. I tried to leave him after the first three months. I let him come back those next honestly, probably like eight to 10 months. It was not as bad as it was at the beginning, but still very unhealthy. Um, there was just a yeah. lot of manipulation, a lot of lies, a lot of, like I said, the back end conversations. And then the last five months, unfortunately, were really bad um, <clears throat> and ended up kicking him out um, after it did turn physical. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. that was the only boundary that I was able to hold. Because uh, I yeah. always said, if it starts to cross that line, and I'm done. And I still didn't necessarily get, I didn't get hit, but I was backed into a corner. I was stood on. And, you know, it was one of those things where it's like, if I don't do something right now, this is where it's headed. And it just, I had never experienced the emotional turmoil after a breakup, not even from my divorce. There was just something totally different about this and it just didn't make sense to me. I just, I felt like that I always compared it to if you ever had that dream when you were a kid, when you showed up to school in your underwear, <laughs> that's, yeah, that's what it felt yeah. like. I felt like I was living that dream. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, when I left my marriage too, I I didn't really feel much of anything for, and so I was like so much in survival mode. I was a single mom and I just was like, not, my head just was I like, I just, I think I left the relationship mentally so like so much earlier than when the relationship ended. But my first long-term relationship after that, which was two years after, I basically pretended that the penises didn't exist for two years. I was just so... (laughs) Nothing wrong with that, girl. (laughs) I know. It was a great two years of like learning, but you know. But then I ended up like kind of in a relationship with a narcissist because I had no idea that they... I guess I didn't know what love bombing was at the time, you know? And I didn't know that they were actually false promises. I wasn't educated enough to pick up on the mask. You learn so much when you start realizing what you're in. And well, yeah. of course, when you get out of it, other than the the physical, when you were in your relationship, I know you said that the physical part was a boundary, you know, that you were like, no, 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 this one we don't cross. Were you aware of the emotional boundaries being crossed or did that kind of come full circle after you left the relationship? That really, that came full circle after. Yeah. So during the relationship, I'm a recovering people pleaser and, Mm -hmm. and I'm also like in my nature, which makes sense why I'm going to school to be an occupational therapist because one of our jobs is to help fix things (laughs) and I'm a natural fixer. And so, you know, I have this person and he's telling me about all these hardships he's had in his life. And he fed me the story that now I know was probably his version of a confession, but he told me this whole 
horrible story about how his ex-husband cheated on him all the time and it was abusive and blah 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 and, and you know there there may be some validity to that but i definitely don't think it was as one-sided as he made it out to believe and so in my mind it's like well this guy's just never been shown what healthy looks like you know he's never been emotionally supported he's never had someone that's been patient with him he's never fill in the blank and i just felt like the harder i tried and the more that i adjusted my behavior and watched how I said things and watched how my eyebrows moved and, you know, made sure I didn't sneeze the wrong way. And like, like I was constantly walking on eggshells and guarding my behavior because it's like, okay, well, I want to put the effort in. And also, you know, I look, I'm Latino and I'm also gay. I know I can have an attitude. Sometimes I don't think that I do, but maybe I do. Like, these are things that I'm telling myself, like, because it was always, well, I have an attitude because you have one. Well, you looked at me funny or this and that. And I'm yeah. Just like, what? You know, so it's just, and it was the worst part that, and this is funny, I, I should talk about this more, but it was actually always when we would go out into public, like when we would go to the bars, that I think is when I felt the most neglected because when we got to the bars and you have to understand, I'm newly out. I don't really know anybody mm-hmm. in the community. He moved from three hours away. So he didn't know anybody there either. So like when we're going to the bars, it's not like we're going to go hang out with our friends. Like we met people as we go, but he that's mm-hmm. all that he cared about. He cared about everyone else that was around him and not me. So it's like, I if we go out, I want to go out and dance and have a good time. Like if we're just going to yeah. sit around and drink and you smoke your cigarettes, well, we could have done that at home for a lot cheaper. <laughs> that's just yeah. in my mind. And that was when I always felt the most neglected. It's because I was always either completely ignored or I was treated like an inconvenience when I'm like, Oh my gosh, I love this song. Can you dance with me? And it was always just this annoyance. And that's, that's when I felt it the most, but in arguments because of my people pleasing tendencies, I just wanted to make him happy. I just wanted him to be calm. I wanted him to feel loved and feel supported. And what I didn't realize the entire time was that he saw my tenderness and instead of appreciating it, he was using my tenderness to abuse me. Yeah, I have such a similar story to that. Like, and I don't think I I would call myself a recovering people pleaser, but I probably am because I it's just I've probably been in recovery for it for so long at this point. But I always felt responsible for this person's mental health without being able to name that. Of, but they made me responsible for it. You know, like when you mentioned, like, like, are my eyebrows making a certain? Am I making a face? Am I being sassy? Like those. Mm -hmm. It's like you said, like Latino. And gay. I'm from New York. I'm from, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm from <laughs> yeah. And so, so it's like, yeah, same cut <laughs> from the same cloth, essentially. But I'm like, like, okay, wait, do I have an attitude? Am I giving a face? Like, I'm not always in control yeah. of my eye rolls. I am sarcastic. Like, and my partner was from the Midwest, and I used to not be able to put together, like, like, what do you mean I look mad? What do you th- like? And I, I would totally yeah. internalize it. And then because I'm self-aware and because I always want to better myself, it would just kind of roll, everything would roll back in and I would get into these cycles of, am I doing this? Which yeah. then was just essentially gaslighting. When I look back, I'm like, For oh sure. my, like just, I was told, and they, he knew that, right? He knew he yeah. could say something and it would penetrate me and I would be so wrapped up in, well, how am I appearing rather than what is this person doing and saying and acting? Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the things that I miss like you mentioned about the mental health side of things. <laughs> What's yeah. interesting, again, how similar are everybody's stories, but especially like with yours and mine. Yeah. So he was diag- he wasn't diagnosed in PD, but he was diagnosed with a mood disorder. And I don't necessarily like saying which one because I try not to stigmatize. 
but he was yeah. diagnosed with it with a mood disorder and he was taking medication but his doctor continually said like you need to go to therapy you need to speak to someone because this particular mood disorder he has it's treated with both the medication is to help with the mood swings but the therapy is what kind of helps you cope with yeah. your disorder and he was trying for three months to get him to go and he finally stopped asking because he just wouldn't go um, yeah. and he would always say things to me and he would like I used to think it, here's what's funny. I used to think it was sweet when he said this stuff, but now looking back, I'm like, wow, what yeah. a load to put on my shoulders. Because he would say things like, yeah, if you ever left me, like I would just stop taking my medication and not take care of myself because what would be the point? Yeah. And I was internalizing those things. And <laughs> I, it's funny looking back on it, thinking that that's like, oh, when really it's like, yeah. no, like, you know, like you're not, I didn't. I wasn't registering that he was putting that guilt on me before I even left because he wasn't dumb. He knew I was going to leave at some point. Mm -hmm. And sure enough, the day that I was leaving him, he threw that right at me. Do you really think I'm going to take care of myself if you leave me? And that was the first time I was able to say, that's not my job. Like my, your mental health is not my responsibility. But up until yeah. that point, it was something I was internalizing. Yeah. In my marriage, I put the responsibility of his sobriety on my shoulders of if I leave, mm -hmm. who's going to keep an eye on him? His family lives right. states away. Like he's not going to keep himself sober. He's not going to keep himself healthy. And he didn't say it explicitly, but he said it in other ways. And I eventually got to the point, like similar to you of like, I need to realize that this isn't on my shoulders. And I think that's something that a lot of people struggle with because I also think society or like the people closest to that person also make you feel like it's on your shoulders. They do. Yeah. Yeah. Did you have that experience? Was there like people either in your community or his family or loved ones that almost made you feel like you were responsible for keeping him safe from himself? No. <laughs> What's funny is like, it was all me because my, yeah. well, first of all, I was with him for 18 months. I met his family once. He kept me very distant yeah. from his family. And my parents were pretty much actually telling me the exact opposite, but they were really good about, they know again, Latino, gay, and Taurus. So talk about stubborn. Um, yeah. They know that if they tell me not to do something or I shouldn't do something, that I'm probably going to do it just out of spite. <laughs> yeah. It, just because it's them. Anybody else tells me, I'll, we'll listen, but it's because it's my parents. It's like, you don't know what you're talking about? Yeah. They would actually tell me, they would just make me think about, they would ask me like thought-provoking questions, but they were more concerned for me than it being like, well, you need to make sure that you help them. But it just goes to show how powerful a hold that he had on me because everyone around me was telling me the opposite, but I was listening to what he was saying. Yeah. Well, that's the voice that's loudest. Mm -hmm. um, and it's and also the trauma bond, you know, makes you believe that it's love a lot yeah. of the time. One of the things I did want to ask you, because I know you help a lot of survivors and you, you know, and you have a lot of content about healing and recovering from abuse was about if you received some of the messages that I think a lot of us receive of like, why can't you just leave? Just walk away. What's wrong with you? It sounds like you actually had a lot of support, but it was your internal dialogue that was almost like promoting the staying. It was. Outside of my immediate family, like my parents kind of saw him for who he was. My kid's mom saw him for who he was. And again, they just, they expressed concern, but it wasn't in a condescending way. But most of our friends, from what I thought, they were, oh, y'all are so cute. You know, because he, again, he mm -hmm. would put on, he put on the show when we would go into public and he was the life of the party and, and all of that. So 
there wasn't a lot of negativity or concern that was being expressed to me by my friend group. <laughs> Ironically, after I left, some people came forward and being like, yeah, you know, I was wondering. I'm like, and at first I got irritated. Yeah. I'm like, well, why didn't you say anything? But at the same time, like, I know where I was at that time period. And it's like, it wouldn't have mattered. Like, it just would yeah. have made me hold on tighter because I was also very set on proving people wrong. Like, I desperately did not want my family to be right about him, you know, because in my mind, I had made this huge change of coming out and getting divorced and restarting my life. I was losing friends left and right. I used to be a worship pastor before I came out. I got kicked out of that program. Like all of this stuff happened and my life essentially kind of crumbled, which I knew it was going to, but there was certain aspects of my life that were crumbling. And I was like, I don't want to have gone through all of this just to end up alone, you know, because of course in my yeah. mind, if it doesn't work out with first guy, then obviously I'd be alone. Like this is yeah. the kind of narrative I was telling myself. And I just, I did not want to be wrong about him, you know, and that was the narrative that I was holding on to the strongest. Yeah. Yeah. That's so huge, right? Because then I think it makes us scared of every other relationship that would come after. Of like, if I got this so wrong, I, what the hell else am I going to get myself into? Yeah, I think fear holds people in more than anything, but it's not just the actual fear of leaving, which does affect a lot of people because some people legitimately are scared for their yeah. life if they try to leave. And that's a very, very real thing. But sometimes it's just the fear of being alone, which was huge for me. It's the fear of, What's my life going to look like after this? It's the fear of change. It's, you know, the, it's a lot of fear of just the unknown. And to me, one of the most paralyzing emotions is fear. And what, mm -hmm. regardless of what the reason is. And I think that is why people stay for so long because there's something that they're afraid of. Yeah. So did that relationship come soon after your marriage ended? Or was it the first relationship after the marriage ended? Yeah. Yes and yes. <laughs> it was very, yes yes. Yes. very soon. <laughs> And this is not something that I'm proud of. And this should have been, well, this should have been red flag number one, really. But my, my divorce wasn't even final. Um, Got it. it was still yeah. very, very early on. And I remember telling myself, I know I should wait. I know I should wait. But again, that fear of being alone outweighed my logic of like, I yeah. know I need to heal from, you know, regardless of the reasons of the divorce, it's still a divorce. Like I need time to heal. I need time to redefine myself and all of that. And I had myself convinced that what he was saying he wanted, which was me, which is, mm -hmm. you know, a single dad, you know, I wasn't into the party scene. I have a more serious life. All I knew for the gay community was just the stigma. You know, everybody parties, everybody's in open relationships, nobody wants kids, blah, blah, blah. And turns out like, yes, that's prevalent in the community, but it's not nearly as prevalent as I thought that it was. But to me, because I didn't know the community and I find this person that's like, oh yeah, I want, I want kids. They don't have to be mine. I just want babies to love on. And, you know, I want a house and the white picket fence and the dog in the yard. I'm like, oh, well, who knows when I'll ever find this again. So even though yeah. I logically knew I should wait, it was that fear of I'm never going to find this again. That made me just be like, well, I'm doing it anyways. Like I remember, even, yeah. I remember thinking that I'm doing it anyways, even though I know I shouldn't. So yeah, it was the first one coming first relationship period coming out. Yeah. It was very, it was before the divorce even had happened. And that's basically like love bombing, like right from the beginning of like, here's oh, all sure. these things that mm -hmm. you have that I want. And then well, when we don't know that we're being love bombed yep. or we don't know what it is, we have no idea. And we're like, this sounds great. Exactly. Yeah. Because of my self-worth had taken such a big hit 
you know, because yeah. of everything that was going on in my life, that I put everything into what he was saying. Like I was finding my value. It probably was more how I valued myself than my actual self-worth, which is kind of the same thing. But I was putting my value in what he was saying to me, which is why the whole love bombing phase, which again, I had no idea what that was at the time, but that's why it was so intoxicating to me and why I just bought it hook, line and sinker because he was telling me everything that I was saying I wouldn't have or that I was saying the opposite of about myself. Yeah. And love bombing feels like a true connection. You know, it's almost like, oh, this is fate mm-hmm. or this is we were supposed to meet or we vibe so well. It doesn't mm-hmm. feel scary, you know, or anything at the beginning. Most of the time now, I think you and I in relationships probably would we would pick up on it. We'd be terrified, you know, but back then yeah, we sure. weren't. Yeah. Right. Yeah. When I met my ex-boyfriend, so this is like, you know, I had a whole story, which sounds like similar to you, to you around like I'm a single parent. I don't go out. I don't like to party. I live a pretty serious life. I own a biz. Like I own, I was still life coaching then. I just wasn't working with people. I was working more with millennial life crisis type transitions rather than emotional oh, wow. and narcissistic abuse. And then I was just like, well, this is this person thought I was like, they liked my flexible lifestyle. They had a flexible work schedule. It was post COVID. And it was like, they said all the right things. They, I never met anybody like you. I, you know, I don't really party either. I respect the boundaries around your kid. Your kid is so cute, like all the right things. And then as time went on, it was just like, like Jesus Christ. Like when I look back, I'm like, oh my gosh. You know, like when someone's like, sounds like, you know, it feels like that strong of a connection the first time is definitely like a big red flag (laughs) now. Oh yeah. And that quick. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about when you left and like what that looked like and felt like after you were done, you mentioned at the beginning that you kicked him out and you kind of enter that void of being alone, you know, almost like facing that biggest fear. Do you remember what the, those first few days felt like? First few weeks, maybe? Oh, yeah. There wasn't a day that I didn't just sob hysterically. Yeah. <laughs> and what is interesting is I actually, and I didn't even know half the story yet, right after I kicked him out. I found out probably about two weeks after I had left him that he had been cheating on me for the last five months of our relationship. Oh, and awful. not even, not like an affair. I'm talking like he was on the apps. Like I, yeah, I know three of, yeah, actively cheating. I know of at least three. I'm sure there were many more, but so it's like, I didn't even know that. And here's what's annoying about it. It was about two weeks. And after about like the, when I was getting to around that two week mark, I kind of had started to feel a little bit okay. Like at least to Mm -hmm. the point where I, like I had actually started to reach a level of acceptance because at least the thing that I had done right is I had allowed myself to grieve. Like I, I felt like I was going to cry. I didn't stop it. Like I just let it out. I would come home from work, literally sit on the edge of my bed. And I would just cry and I allowed myself to do that. And so because I was doing that and I just kind of saw how he was acting because we were still in contact and all of this stuff, I I had gotten to the point where it was just like, you know what? It just, it was never supposed to work. You saw all this stuff at the beginning. It was too early for you personally. This was doomed to fail. Like, and so I'd Mm -hmm. at least gotten to a little bit of acceptance. Still hadn't understood everything that happened to me, but I was at least starting to feel a little bit okay about it into an acceptance phase. And then I found out he cheated. And when I found that out, it was like, that was like the last piece of 
the facade of who I thought he was completely shattered because I wasn't surprised about all the lying and the choices that he was making outside of the home, not cheating, but there was most likely drugs being used out while he was at work and all right. that stuff. But and none of that surprised me. <laughs> you know, it was just kind of like, well, yeah, not terribly surprised. But he used to say this to me all the time. And it, it always just felt so genuine. And he would say, my ex-husband cheated on me multiple times. And I could never do that to somebody because I know how much that hurts. And so it's mm. like, that is the one thing that I actually believed him on. There was yeah. a lot of things that I, I knew and suspected he was lying about. I just chose to ignore it, if I'm being completely honest. But that one, I was like, that I believe. So when I found out that not even that was true, I was like, wow, I lived with a stranger. I have no idea who this person actually is. And that's actually when the whole mental chaos started with me. That was like my first big, and that started my spiral, honestly. Yeah. How did you, so, yeah, (laughs) I know. I remember, I I forgot who I told at the time. It was one of like the coaches I was working with, but I remember telling them that I felt like I was like, I am so like actually sick. Like, like I was like, I had basically COVID symptoms, but I didn't have COVID. And like, I was like, so sick. And she was like, this is withdrawal. Like, this is what this feels like. And she's like, and no one really talks about that. You could get, you do sometimes get physically sick because your body is getting rid of so much shit that was there yeah so so that period sounds like it was probably very dark for you what do you remember from it like you said like you were sobbing often I'm sure that was it just felt very I don't know like very well I guess that's when you entered like a lot of rumination yeah that's actually what started my whole rumination cycle uh, because it was like okay what the hell just happened and so it just like I was replaying aspects of the relationship like over and over and over again I got obsessed with like, I joke all the time. I'm like, I literally became a pro at cyber stalking in this room, this dude. Yeah. Like I was <laughs> yeah. unblocking and blocking him on Instagram. I learned quickly, like don't unblock on Facebook, y'all, because you got to wait 48 hours before you can block him again. Learn from my mistake. Um, but yeah. I was blocking and unblocking on Instagram. I yeah. was creating fake accounts on dating apps to try to find him and like all this stuff. And I was obsessed with what was he doing now and what was the story that he was telling everybody because I knew I never reached out to the ex-husband. I thought about it, but I didn't because I'm like, okay, he made his ex-husband out to be this complete monster. So he's got to be doing the same thing about me. And so I was just obsessed with what his story was. And again, like I mentioned, we were still in contact. He was smart enough to not try to hoover me back in in the dating aspect necessarily, but he was playing really hard into the you know, well, let's be friends. You're the best friend that I've ever had, you know, blah, blah, blah. So, and this is how I know I was still trauma bonded because my head was like, I don't want this person in my life because I don't even know who he is. Like, he's clearly a monster, but I still couldn't imagine my life without him because so much of my self-concept was wrapped up in him. And it's like, I know I don't want him in my life, but I can't stop talking to him. Like, it it truly is like an addiction. And that's Mm -hmm. what I started almost I've never struggled with my own personal addiction, but I started to try to treat it like that. So, I mean, I think at one point in time, I was even the same, the freaking throwing prayer at one point yeah. in time, because it's like, I feel addicted to this. It feels very out of my control. It was the first thing I thought about when I woke up, the last thing I thought about when I went to bed and often on all day in between. And it was like, I was trying to, and I think there's a portion of rumination that's a little bit healthy because I do think you need to look back on the relationship without the rose colored glasses. 
and really see it for what it was. But the problem is, is that we can't stop. Like we get to this Mm -hmm. place of dwelling unless we have tools that can help us distract and redirect our thoughts and like all of that. So there was a period of time where I I needed it, but then I just couldn't stop. And that lasted for months. I mean, like literally four or five months because I just, nobody was able to really tell me what to do. I was in therapy every week and she was great and validated me a lot, but it was just like, nobody was giving me just these practical like how to's. And so I just started trying everything. Like I was a psych major for undergrad. I started trying different tactics and stuff that I remembered from my studies way back in the day. And I was journaling and I was trying different techniques and some didn't work, some worked great. And I was just desperate to just get back to normal and just feeling like myself again, because I felt very powerless in that whole process of just feeling stuck. Yeah. And you mentioned like, you know, you were in therapy, you're talking to your therapist about, you know, everything. And I'm sure like she was supportive and was helpful, but she Mm -hmm. probably wasn't naming trauma bond or that this is like an addiction. The only terms that she used, she did use the word narcissistic relationship. And she, she told me that she felt like that's what I was in. And she used the term gaslighting a lot. And I didn't even know what that term meant. So the first time she used it, I just kind of like let it go because I was like, whatever. And then I came back for my next session because again, I was going every week. And then Mm -hmm. she said it again. And I was like, okay, what is that? Like, this is the second time I've heard you say that. Like, what does that mean? Like, I didn't even know what gaslighting meant. So she used a couple of like, those are the only two in terms that she she used. And she did say like emotionally abusive. I mean, mean, she wasn't Mm -hmm. wrong. It was an emotionally abusive relationship. But the depths of like what narcissism really is and just even narcissistic traits, regardless if he had NPD or not, like it's ultimately not about the labels. It's about the behaviors that they're exhibiting. And he was 100% Mm -hmm. doing all of this stuff uh, the more that I was researching. Yeah. Something that I just want to name because I think it's so important is that I had a client last night. It was our first time speaking. He has a narcissistic family relationship and I work with his partner and he wanted to basically talk through some of the threads that were coming up for him. He's in therapy. And one of the first questions I asked was, I said, okay, does your therapist understand narcissism or do they understand personality disorders in this way? And he goes, well, I assume so. And I was like, oh, like, that's not, I said, well, you know, and as we talked, it does seem like this person has knowledge. I said, like, you should flat out ask them like what their, you know, what their background is on this. I said, because I'm specifically trained in narcissism and emotional abuse. Like it was a very long, intensive training, but not every therapist understands personality disorders. They may not even recognize them half the time. Right. I basically understood in that last relationship that I was being gaslit and I was being abused, but I couldn't break away from it. And I was trying to cut through a lot of the what the hell is happening in this. I grew up in an abusive home. So a lot of this felt normal. I'm sure a lot of it also Mm -hmm. was present in my marriage. And so when she, when we would like work it out, she'd be like, you know, we get through like the what's going on for me. And then she'd be like, okay, so what do you think's going on for him? And that's kind of where every conversation went when it needed to go like far away from that. You know, like, 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 we're not thinking about him. Like he, you know, and I I remember when I just fired her, like I just ended that relationship and Mm -hmm. I sought somebody out that specifically knew these patterns and could help me basically stop ruminating ungaslight me, validate me and help me with some tools. And I I named those things. But I remember telling them I have spent so much time thinking about what he thinks that like, I don't even know what I think anymore, because that's like, this has been a a disaster. (laughs) Yeah. 
Well, you're bringing up such a good point, like to your clients too, because it's the same concept of like, if you're diagnosed with cancer, you want to go to a doctor that specializes in cancer treatment. You know, it's the same thing with, it's the same thing with our mental health. You're like, if you, and these kinds of relationships too, like my therapist didn't specialize in them, but the thing that I appreciated about her, I had been going to her for like five years, so I just wasn't comfortable switching with anybody. Mm -hmm. But the thing that she kind of started to develop it was, well, what's happened to you along your life that's allowed you to accept these kind of behaviors from someone? And so it's kind of more, which I really think is important questions for anybody to answer, because if you don't answer those questions and then start to reverse the narrative that you've built for yourself over your lifetime, then you're setting yourself up for this to happen again. Like getting over a narcissistic individual for me is just step one. I don't Mm -hmm. believe that it takes you your whole life to heal from a narcissistic person, but the elevation of your self-worth and your self-value and being able to set healthy boundaries and understanding like what has happened to you that makes you view yourself in a way that thinks this behavior is okay. The part of that is a lifelong journey because you should always be growing and improving and perfecting that craft. And that's what she's helped me a lot with. Yeah, absolutely. I think we're always learning, especially what now that we see the patterns and we know what's healthy, what's not healthy, what's healthy for us, like what we're susceptible to. It is a constant, you know, we're going to see it in every area of life. I remember a friend said to me, you see abuse everywhere. Like you got to stop. And I was like, what? <laughs> like, yeah, no, I don't really want to stop. I want to be aware of these situations because they have come up. Like, you know, you mentioned this actually at the top of the episode mm-hmm. that you realized that there was narcissism in other relationships in your life, either if it was a family member or, you know, work situations, I'm sure friends. And then you start to notice it and see the patterns and see also why you weren't so uncomfortable in some situations and maybe didn't mm-hmm. have the words for it. Yeah, absolutely. And it's not about like, we're playing a game of trying to find the narcissist under every rock. (laughs) That's not what it is. But it's like, but it is important to, and I'm the first one to tell people this. And like, eventually, you're going to know everything that you need to know about this kind of topic. And that's why even like in my coaching community, it's not restricted to just like narcissism. It Mm -hmm. is about like, the true process of reclaiming your life afterwards. Like we don't talk about love bombing and gaslighting and all that. It's about, okay, let's shift your focus back to you. Like you've learned enough, like you have all the logical knowledge. Now let's start applying and implementing. And because sometimes we can just get stuck in the knowledge part of it. And it is about that journey and understanding that, okay, yes, maybe just like in both of our situations, maybe this relationship is the one that opened my eyes to it. But if I've been accepting this from multiple people in my life, then something's not right with how I view myself because I think Mm -hmm. this is okay. I don't recognize it or I think this is normal. And that's the part that is the deep rooted work. And that's that's what I love helping walk people through. And that's what I focus a lot on in the coaching community is let's change how you view yourself and build build a balanced practice of taking care of yourself and valuing yourself so that way You work hard and put in the work to create this life for you that you're going to be protective of it. And you can recognize this stuff and be like, you know what? I've worked too hard to get to where I'm at and you're not going to mess this up for me. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I know that we're almost at time. So I'm wondering if there's one strategy that you want to share that you do work with people on that is helpful in stopping the rumination. Yeah, I'll give you two, actually. So the first one that I walk people through, I very rarely do things where we like 
look back on the relationship very specifically because again, I try to help people guide them to shift their focus. But one thing that I think is really important, and this just kind of helps you be able to accept the relationship and the person for who they really were, is I call it your reality list. And you need to make a list, write it down on pen and paper of everything that they did that made you feel devalued, that made you feel disrespected, that made you feel unsafe, that your basic needs were asking too much. And I always tell my clients, get specific with this. Like, don't say, well, she was disrespectful. Well, how? Like, what did she say? What did she do? You know, what were the words that he used that disrespected you? And this isn't to re-traumatize. What this is, is to make you stop questioning your own reality. Because I think as survivors, I don't think I know, every survivor I've worked with, there's some sort of self-blame. There's some sort of, well, was it really that bad? Or, oh, well, there's a deep person or a good person deep down. And all that that's doing is just shielding you from the pain of acceptance. And you have to reach acceptance in order to reach indifference. So mm-hmm. you start with that list. And anytime you question your reality or you start to think if you were the problem or you question if you were the, the narcissistic person, you go back to that list and you remind yourself like, no, this was my experience. And no, I wasn't perfect in the relationship, but I still didn't deserve this. And that's, yeah. that's one of the first things I always have my clients do. And the second one, this one always surprises people. This is part of my like my occupational therapy brain. It's making a list of just activities that you enjoy. What are things mm-hmm. in your life that fill your cup, that bring you peace, that bring you joy? And it doesn't have to be this like traditional society's view of self-care, like manis petties and massages and nothing wrong with any of that yeah. stuff. So like, what are the things that you do or you can do on a daily basis that brings you joy? What are some of these things that you've not done in a long time? either because you were told it was selfish and you couldn't, or there's a negative connotation to them, whatever it might be. And start to incorporate these things back into your life and take care of yourself. So whether it's quality time with your friends, so many of us were isolated in this. Go start having dinners with your friend and just talk about talk about anything but that. Or if they are a safe space, then sure, share it with them if, if you need to. You know, But just go out and start making new memories and new things. If your family's a safe environment, set up quality time with them. You know, If you like going for a drive, Schedule going for a drive that week. And even if that's the only thing you do, that might be more than what you're doing right now. Start doing your nighttime skincare routine. You know, start Mm -hmm. getting back in touch with your spiritual life. Like just find these things that are meaningful to you and make a plan of how you can incorporate it. But I always tell people, meet meet yourself where you're at. Don't shoot for the moon. Don't try to be like, I'm going to do seven things tomorrow. Like nobody has time to do all of that every single day. But set yourself a goal that you feel like is attainable. Like if you feel like, I can schedule three things this week that's just for me, guilt-free, then start there. And then when you hit that, your confidence is going to grow because you'll be proud of the fact like, wow, I took care of myself this week. And then you can maybe do a little bit more the next week or just keep it at three and just develop a new pattern. But start to incorporate things that fill your cup and you'd be shocked at how much that will do for you and helping you just reshift your focus both mentally and physically to where you're not just being stuck in the same mental rut. Yeah, I love that. That's actually one I shared too. And we've been aligned on a lot of things today. So I'm not surprised (laughs) we're aligned there. And I love that you frame that it's not like about facials, Manny Teddies, like the things we think about in the world. It could be, it's really whatever makes you feel like you. And, you know, if it's as simple as like getting up and like doing your hair, you know, you might be in pajamas Mm -hmm. all day, but you did that one thing that when you look in the mirror, you feel proud. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Trey, can you share how people can find you and what offerings you have? Yeah, I'd love to. So I'm on TikTok. 
I'm on Instagram and Facebook and YouTube. My handle is I was like yo underscore Trey. I think on Instagram and maybe Facebook, it has a one after, but most of them are mm-hmm. just I was like yo underscore Trey. And like I mentioned earlier, I do offer a coaching community where we just work on implementable strategies that you can start incorporating into your day to day life that carries you just beyond just getting over the narcissistic person, but it carries you to where you are really actually reclaiming your inner peace and mental clarity and building your self-value enough to where you don't accept these kind of behaviors from people in the future and you continue to build a life that you're proud of and a life that's fulfilling to you. I do also have a course. It's called Breaking Free from Rumination. I always tell people this is the resource that I wish that I had had back in that time because I was just so desperate for a plan. (laughs) So it's a... It's a seven-week course and it's self-paced. You take your time with it and it gives you essentially like a topic that week and then a specific homework strategy that you can start implementing and how to redirect your thoughts and get out of that rumination cycle. And then the last thing that I have is something called the Wellness World Journal, which that's very catered towards the meaningful activity side that I was mentioning. Um, It helps you create that balanced practice of self-care really, but and redefine what self-care means that getting out of that society's view of self-care and it helps you set up a plan with that with daily accountability, reflection questions, that way you can just start incorporating all the areas that are meaningful to you. Because if we just stick with one thing, like if the only thing that we do for ourselves is just go and get our hair done, like once every couple months or something, and then what if your stylist gets sick? And you have to put off your appointment for another three months. Now what do you do? So it's, it's mm-hmm. about having multiple pipelines that are feeding into you. And that's what the journal, it made a huge difference for me. That was a huge trajectory change for me as well in my yeah. healing. So I have all those out. And if every single one of my profiles has a little link in my bio, you just click that link and it gets you to everything. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like everyone has yeah, at this point. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Like I mentioned to you before we started, I'm going to share all your links in the show notes so that people can find you easily and hopefully tap into your community or even if they're in the, they're still in the beginning of their healings, tap into the course. And you explained it beautifully on this podcast of how you worked through all those mental battles. And obviously that will all come up in that course. Yeah. You know, it's the course you needed. Yeah. Thank you so, so much for joining me. I really enjoy talking to you. I I am like, little surprised about the amount of parallels we have, but I'm very <laughs> grateful for your time. Well, I really appreciate you asking me on here. It was so much fun and it was a very big honor to be a part of this and be a part of anybody's healing journey that's listening to this. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.